All right, good morning. So last week I told you to look at the outline and not panic. This time I'm going to tell you to look at the outline. Go ahead and panic. So uh, we'll work quickly and we will do the best we can. So go ahead and grab your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 5. Actually 6. They're close though. Matthew chapter 6. So we're talking about prayer this morning. Let me give you a little bit of context. We are not just talking about prayer in an isolated sense, we're talking about prayer because we are talking about the means of grace and then kind of level two means of grace, spiritual discipline. So let's just real quick rehash what we are talking about with this idea of means of grace. First and foremost, um, we don't use any of that lingo today. So we do have to do a lot of work just to even make sense of the expression means of grace. We don't use the word means that often in this context, and we almost always use grace to mean something else. When we think of grace, we immediately, in a Christian context, we think about the grace of salvation, that we didn't earn it, that we didn't deserve it, that we are here by no working of our own, by no merit of our own, but simply by God's grace, He chose to save us. And that's certainly a very regular use of the word grace in the Scriptures. Another usage of that word, though, is the way God carries us through. We all know when we get saved, and I know Scott referenced at the beginning, we, the baptism led right into the wilderness. A lot of us maybe were tired of going through that wilderness. It seems like it always creeps back in. We know that there's a struggle. There's a roller coaster ride to the Christian life. We got saved by grace, but then it's like, man, I just, I need more help. I need something to sustain me as we get through, and a lot of times we do at that moment revert back to works, and we think we need to earn this power to continue forward, but it's still grace in the scriptures. It's still grace that carries me through from beginning to end. When Paul prayed three times that that thorn in the flesh would be removed, you may remember that God's answer to him is, no, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Not just grace to be saved, but the grace to carry us through. So the question we're asking is, are there ways that we can take hold of that grace? Is there a way, you know, like if they just sold grace in a juice bottle at Walmart, that would be great. We could just pop it open drink some grace down. So what is the biblical way of popping open the bottle and drinking? We've been given some specific ways we can participate in this transforming grace, in this trans, uh, this uh, sustaining grace, this life-altering grace, and we call those means. That's all we mean when we say means of grace. There's What bottles are there? What, what particular tasks, strategies, tools can I use to grow in Christ? So let's see if you remember the formal objective, corporate means of grace. There were only three in the scriptures, and we said baptism, Lord's Supper, and preaching the word. So that's, if you think about it, that's how the church is gathered together and focused around those. And ideally, in a, you know, ideal scenario, we'd do all three of those sacraments every single Sunday. If we had someone coming to the, the, the Lord in faith each week and getting saved, I mean, how glorious would that be? But the idea is we do these corporately as a group, we grow in grace. They all do a transforming work in our hearts. So those are the formal means of grace. And when we talk about the informal or objective versus subjective, we usually, in theology, if you go get a systematic theology book, you'll see these listed under different headings. And instead of means of grace for the second set, we call these spiritual disciplines. Um, there's things we do privately, individually, in our own prayer closet, so to speak, that we do. We practice these things. We use these tools and we can grow in the Lord. So last week we talked about how you use the scriptures to do that. We study the word. We read the word. We dive into the word. We saturate ourselves with the word. What I want to make sure you know as we go forward 
we never leave that one behind because all of the other disciplines are only fruitful in as much as they are still word-filled. So we need to make sure the Bible saturates everything we do with these other disciplines. So we're going to talk about prayer this morning as a means of grace, as a spiritual discipline. So we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the how. We're going to talk about the theology behind why to some degree, but the main goal is we want to see how prayer plays a role in my sanctification. How do I grow in grace? How do I sustain through grace, through prayer? That's what we're diving into. So open to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to pick up in one of the most, uh, I said five again. It's chapter 6. How many times I say five? It's chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 5. That's where the 5 is coming from. Matthew 6, 5, and just see what Jesus has to say about prayer in the New Testament. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Near the very center of the sermon, we have that one passage of Scripture almost everyone knows by heart, and uh, that comes in verse 9, but let's read the part leading up to it. So when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, we think through that. Jesus, in the New Testament here, is saying, when you pray, there's an assumption built into that. What's he assuming already? That you do pray. So he's speaking to Old Testament people and assuming automatically, hey, prayer is something that you do. So under the principle of prayer in your outline, let's go ahead and fill in the first one. Both the Old and New Testaments command us to pray. This is not a New Testament phenomenon. We do get more instruction on prayer in the New Testament. We get a little bit more honing and shaping of the form and nature of prayer, but prayer is instrumental. It's a big deal in both Testaments. So immediately, right out of the gate, Jesus assumes his audience already knows that. These are good Jewish Hebrew people that know their Old Testament. He's quoting scripture at other points where he knows, they already know what he's talking about. They know they should be praying. And the reality is, I don't think I've ever met a believer who I could say, hey, did you know that you were supposed to be praying? I don't think I've ever met a believer that said, oh, no, I didn't know I was supposed to be doing that. We know this. This is part of our culture. We've grown up in, if you grew up in a religious home like I did, you prayed at least three times a day, right? Maybe four, but at least those three, and what, what three times was that? Meal time, right? You pray at the meals, and I love my son, Pax. He's, he's really getting into this thing. He knows he's supposed to do that now. And sometimes he'll forget, or he was daydreaming when we prayed, and say, we'll start eating. He said, Dad, did we pray yet? I said, yeah, yeah, we prayed. But since he doesn't remember it, he's like, hold on, hold on. I didn't participate in that one. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, I, I get what he's doing, but like it's this rigid pattern. We all know we're supposed to be doing this. And at least those three, and then usually at the end of the day, we've got some bedtime ritual, especially as a kid. I remember that I quoted the famous one. If I tried to do it now, I'd probably forget it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know how it goes, and there's different versions of it. We know we're supposed to be doing this. We just don't. We don't do it as much. We, we do those formal ones maybe. Maybe you've got your three down. Maybe you've, you know we pray on Sunday sometimes, and so there's like this. I get those formal ones, but maybe I'm, we know we're not doing all the other prayer. That we ought to be doing. So my goal in this sermon is not to beat you up for not praying. It's just kind of come to the table together and say, hey, you know, we all know we don't do this well. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about how to grow here. And let's hopefully leave with a, a new motivation, a new direction for how we can go forward with our prayer. But in both Testaments, this was absolutely obvious. We see it modeled by the patriarchs. We see it proclaimed by the prophets. And then the temple itself, what's Jesus called the temple in the New Testament when he turns over the tables? This is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is the symbol of the Old Testament. You come, you pray here. Since Solomon's dedication was opening with prayer, this is where God will hear 
that prayer, and you can commune with God Almighty through the temple. So prayer was a fundamental aspect of the Old Testament. Of course, in the New Testament, it's everywhere. So let's talk next about Jesus. So Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, both corporately and privately. So let me show you what I'm saying here. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we just read, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, when Jesus says hypocrites, he's generally speaking about one particular group of people in the New Testament. Who's that? The Pharisees. In fact, we virtually use those words synonymously, the hypocrite and the Pharisee. This is how they pray. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue, so their version of a church, and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So you can imagine what this prayer looks like. Probably hands up. You know, it's, it's not hands up to the Lord so much as, hey, y'all see me? Kind of hands up. And it prays. What's the goal of this prayer? It's to make much of my own self-righteousness. If you've been in church at all, you've seen this prayer. You, you've, maybe you've prayed this prayer. You know what we're talking about. There's a boastfulness in this prayer. They're doing it to be seen. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some people read this verse and think, well, Jesus is saying we should only pray in that prayer room. That's not at all what he's saying. He is telling us to pray in our prayer room. No question whatsoever. And he's not saying there has to be a specific room, and that's the only room you can pray. Can you pray? Is there any place you can't pray? Right? Where should you pray? Where you are. Okay? Now, can you have a designated place? Absolutely, sure, that's great to have habits and rituals. That's not what Jesus is getting at, however. So it says, also, when you pray, don't don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We'll talk about that in a second. Pray then like this, our Father. Now, unpack that. Is that a private prayer in your prayer closet? It's not. How do you know? The first word tells you hour. This is a corporate prayer. Jesus is telling you, hey, you need to make sure you pray in private, and then he gives us a praying form that's corporate. Both of them are in the New Testament. Jesus does both in the New Testament. He goes and he prays by himself many times, and many times he's praying out loud, and sometimes he prays out loud for no other purpose than that you hear what he's praying so that you know how this is. So there's a lot of things about prayer, and it includes both private and corporate. So we see Jesus saying this, our Father who art in heaven. And then furthermore, Jesus modeled devotion to prayer. Jesus modeled devotion to prayer. Several examples. Before he picked the 12 disciples, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. It's interesting. Even Jesus, the God of the universe, is spending time in prayer. Before he walks on water, Remember after he feeds the 5,000, he sends the disciples on, and they have to go by themselves, and he's like, no, I'm going to go up on the mountain, and he spends the whole night that night in prayer before he comes out and walks on water. And of course, maybe the most famous prayer session Jesus has with his disciples is in the Garden of Gethsemane after the the teaching on, on Maundy Thursday. They have had the Lord's Supper together. He goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks the apostles to come and pray with him, and of course, you know, what are they doing instead? They... They fall asleep. The flesh is willing. I mean, sorry, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus is there praying with the Father. Jesus is modeling for us that we should pray and have a devout prayer life. We all know this, however. I'm not saying anything new. 
to any of us. I think we can all, it's in the room, we know we're supposed to be praying and we don't. So let's go to the next level though. So it's not just the principle of prayer. Let's talk about the power of prayer. So right out of the gate, I feel like we need to deconstruct what we think is happening here in order to reconstruct the proper biblical form. So the power of prayer is not about how people can manipulate God to do glorious things in their lives. Unfortunately, a lot of the teaching on prayer in this culture is about if you pray this way, if you pray like this in this place with this attitude, then you're guaranteeing results. That is a formula for maybe a pagan God. That is not a formula for our God. So first and foremost, when you pray, um, how long has God known about the problem you're bringing to him? Before you did, right? How much before you did? Like before creation, before you did. Very beginning. How much of the timeline does God comprehend? The whole timeline, including the eternity we're going to spend with him afterwards. You know, a lot of times we think of the timeline that God perceives as being from creation to us making it to heaven. And no, 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 no. The time part extends into our experience of eternity. God sees that whole narrative. All of it. We cannot bring information to God. Now, sometimes people ask me, and kids ask this all the time, it's a genuine question on one level, is, well, if God already knows, then, then why should I be praying about it? You, have, you probably asked that question. Why, why bother? Why bother bringing this up? It's an interesting question, but if you think through it, it's really kind of silly. Do you talk with your spouse about things your spouse already knows? Have you ever watched the movie with someone, and then afterwards... You go, well, for me, I'm like, let's drink a cup of coffee and let's unpack this movie. We both just saw it. What are we doing now, though? Disgusting. I, I'm, it's, it's relational. It's interaction. You're not praying to God to tell him anything that he doesn't know. Why are you praying to God? To relate, to interact. Your children can come and tell you something you already know, but do you delight in hearing their version of the story? Of course you do. You've got kids. You've been around kids. You know how this is. It's relationships. So the true power of prayer is in our relationship with the Father. So what's remarkable about the Sermon on the Mount here is when Jesus says, pray then like this, the first two words are our Father. That's what's radically new about the New Testament. Very little of this father-son lingo in the Old Testament. Generally, that father-son lingo was father over the singular nation of Israel, but Jesus is making it very specific, very personal here, because he is emphasizing our personal relationship with Jesus. Even so much in Romans chapter 8, the glory of the Spirit being in you is that now, through that Spirit, you cry out, Abba, Father. It's a genuine interaction with the Lord. I remember one time praying, as a, I say a child, a youth. And uh, I remember for the first time, and yeah, I had a lot of genuine prayers as a child. Grew up in church. I was learning to do this. I, I care. But there was one situation where I was legitimately fearful for someone's life in this heat moment where I knew something could go wrong. And my gut reaction was to cry out, God, I didn't even make a request. It was more like, just fix this. You know, it was like a, Father, Dad help, you know, this is kind of the idea. That's all that happened. And I remember for the first time thinking, wow, that's, that's probably one of the most genuine prayers I've prayed to date. 
just a genuine, heartfelt exclamation to Father, Abba. And we don't need to make prayer this way, we manipulate God. This way, I, okay, if I do it like this, you know, we all, anybody have that prayer, Jabez book? You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, well, he prayed for land, and God gave him land. Okay, well, you can pray for things, but don't, do not think that you've got some formula. I do this formula, God has to obey me. God listens to our prayers. Sometimes he just says, no, <laughs> absolutely, I'm not giving you that. My children ask for things all the time, and the answer's no. I'm glad they're talking to me, though, so I would rather you pray wrong than not pray, but uh, let's not make prayer about a formula for manipulating God. It's about relationship. Now, when we think through the New Testament, however, what we're going to see is that most prayer in the New Testament is about growing in Christ-likeness. Now, you get a group of Baptists together, and you have a prayer meeting. Almost all of the prayer requests are about what? Health. They're almost exclusively about health. And if they're not about health, they're about this, this other category. What is it? Well, what so-and-so's doing wrong. Because it's really just gossip session. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. Okay, you've made that request. However, in the New Testament, we see a very different paradigm. I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 1. So, I love Ephesians This is right after that long run on sentence in chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 15. The Apostle Paul is giving us a little insight into what his prayer life looks like for the saints, for each church he visits when he prays for them. These are the kinds of things he's asking for. So he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, here's the heart of it. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What's part one of his prayer request? I want you to know God better. That's his heartfelt prayer for all of his congregations. I just want God, you to know him better, have a revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having your eyes and hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. He just wants these people to grow in this, to see the majesty and the glory, the awe-inspiring wonder of who God is in their lives. That's his prayer for them. That's often not our prayers. Our prayers are much more simplistic. We aren't thinking about that Christ-like growth, but this is what the Scriptures model for us. And this is what our prayers ought to look like. Paul makes the same prayer for himself at the end of the book. Ephesians 6, 19, he asks them to pray and says, also for me that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now this is in lieu of him being in prison. Saying, guys, I'm in prison. I want you to pray for me that I would have boldness. Now can you imagine the apostle Paul not having boldness? It feels like we think of Paul, and we think of this rock-solid guy who just, no matter where he goes, the gospel is proclaimed. It's because he's getting people everywhere to pray for him. Pray for this mission. Pray for this goal in life. And then I love Acts 4.29. This is right after Peter had been arrested. He, he gets out. They show up. He starts praying. Um, and I love his phrasing. Like, Everything that you predestined to occur would happen. It's just acknowledging God's power and sovereignty, and then he, after he praises the Lord, he transitions in 429 to this, and now, 
Lord, look upon their threats. And so you expect him to call hellfire down on his enemies. But he says, now look at their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with your word with all boldness. Now, where's his prayer concerned? Is it trying to alleviate the pain and suffering of his life? No. His prayer is focused on how he can respond in faithfulness, how the whole church can respond in faithfulness in light of suffering. There's this common theme in New Testament prayers that it's, it's not about the prayer of Jabez. It's like the opposite of the prayer of Jabez. It's this, God, keep us faithful. In spite of the suffering, in spite of the pain, in spite of the resistance, give us the boldness to press forward anyway. Well, this is the power of prayer. It's not that, man, I prayed for that new car and God gave me the new car. It's I prayed for life change. I prayed that God would sustain me. I prayed that he would give me faith. I prayed that he would strengthen my faith, give me faithfulness. And he's met me time after time after time in this request. That's the power of prayer. Now let's talk about the practice. So we're going to get a little nitpicky for just a moment. Christian, sorry, Christians pray in a very particular way. This is modeled consistently throughout the New Testament, and it's Trinitarian. We pray to the Father. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Right? We pray to God the Father. So you notice, I'm try, I try to be very particular about this, especially when I'm praying in public, because I want to model this well. So when I talk about Jesus in my prayers, it's almost always third person. That's grammatical. Do you understand the difference between third person and second person? So instead of you, Jesus, I would say your son, because I'm talking in second person to whom? God the Father about the Son. Now, where does the Spirit come in? Power? That's, that's a very good way to say it. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you how the Spirit comes in to prayer. So we pray in the name of the Father. Sorry, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Spirit. But I want you to see this in Romans 8. Romans 8. What the Spirit is doing in our prayer life. I'm going to pick up in verse 26, Romans 8, 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. All right, let's just pause for a second. Who can identify with that verse? So we start to pray, and it's like mind goes blank. What do I even ask for? And I love how John Piper says it. At any given moment, you have a billion prayer requests in your mind. And in that one moment, you go to pray, and you can't think of any of them. Fret not. I love saying the word fret not. Fret not because the Spirit knows you go blank. He knows you have no idea what you're talking about. It's like children will come and ask a question, and you know what they're trying to say, but their question doesn't make sense. Like, he reads between the lines. He knows what you mean. So when we're not praying like we ought, he says, the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. I've, I've even been there. My prayer was, <sighs> who's prayed that prayer? I pray that prayer at least once a week. It's like, 
<sighs> I'm not speaking in tongues. All right, that's not what's happening there. I'm just emotionally making a sign. And, uh, you know, I'll say that sometimes. I don't even realize I'm doing it. And I'll be like, what? I'm like, well, I didn't say anything. He's like, you didn't say anything, but you sighed. And I think back, okay, you're right. I sat down and went, Whew. You know, there's just this, or you know, it's, if it's not a verbal thing, it's just, you ever done the head shake? Driving down the road, I'm thinking about something. You ever see me? I'm not listening to music sh- shaking my head. I'm not that guy. I'm just sitting here thinking, why, Lord? Why? Holy Spirit knows what that head nod means, right? He can interpret the sign. You know, we read body language all the time. The Holy Spirit can see body language down to the core of your being. You ever try to hide your body language with somebody? You're mad at them, but you don't want to tell them. You can't fool the Holy Spirit. He knows better than you know what's going on in your mind. So I don't say that to scare you. I say that to comfort you. So if you're going, man, I just don't know if I'm praying right. doesn't matter. I'm praying at all. You're trying to be God-focused in any way in your mind. Holy Spirit reads between the lines. He knows what's going on. So we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. That's stated many times in the Scriptures. John 14 um, is a good example of that. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now next, we should pray corporately. Many of the prayers in the New Testament are spoken in the context of a gathered group of people. Now I know people in general are scared to death to pray out loud in church. Is that anybody? You're probably also scared to raise your hand. So (laughs) we have this tendency to be terrified of that. I understand the New Testament assumes that we're going to gather around and do that. He says, Paul says to Timothy, I, I desire that men in all places pray with holy hands lifted. I mean, like, we should all gather together and pray. In fact, the head coverings passage in 1 Corinthians 11, which everyone you know, kind of misses the context because we're always wondering about the, the head covering part. We'll just ignore the head covering part for a second. The whole context of the head covering part was when you were praying in public at church. That's the context of that passage. It's assuming we are going to pray corporately. So I'm not here to condemn you if you don't like praying corporately. I get It scares everyone to death. I grew up being terrified of praying in public. But if you're gathered together in a small group and everybody's praying, I encourage you, just go for it. You know, if someone thinks you prayer, your prayer was dumb, they're the one in sin at that moment. Because what are they doing? Judging, exactly. No, you just... Just pray. Let's pray together. Let's pray corporately. This is all over the New Testament. And I love the 1 Timothy 2.8 section. I pray that men, all men would gather together and pray with holy hands lifted up. So this is going to also come into um, body posture. The word posture left my mind for a second. Body posture. So what body posture should you take when we pray? The biblical answer is whichever one you need. There's a lot of body postures in the Bible. We think by default, in the Baptist world, or really evangelicals by and large, when we pray, what's our default body posture? Bow your head. We, we do something with our hands. Usually we put them together. Maybe, maybe not this. Kids, we teach our kids to do that, but then they realize quickly that the adults aren't doing that. You know. But we, we close our eyes and we bow our head. And I remember as a kid, if you didn't do that, like that was probably a way to go straight to hell. Like, it was a pretty big deal. Like, because I remember one time my Sunday school teacher saying, I saw that you didn't have your, your, your eyes closed and your head bowed. Of course, the Pharisee in me went, that means you're going to hell too. 
Because <laughs> you were looking. All right, that's not the point, right? It's not that there's a particular form that's the correct form. These different forms are actually connected to the, the attitude, the posture is connected to the emotional attitude of the prayer. So to bow your head is to show what attitude to the Lord. That's, that's reverence and humility. You, you humble before the Lord. Have you ever prayed prostrate on the ground? I used to do that in another church where there was carpet in the sanctuary. I would actually come in and part of my prayer time was to prostrate on the ground and pray to the Lord just as an act of submission. I can't do it on this floor, though. It's just not the same. So it doesn't happen in this building. But you understand there's different attitudes. Another way to pray, we see this scripturally, is with eyes up towards heaven, arms open. This is a joyful prayer. This is a victorious prayer. This is a God has rescued, saved me. He's worthy of worship sort of prayer. Now, you notice you see all of these forms in worship. Sometimes people pray with their arms up. A lot of people aren't arms up people. It's head bowed. All of those are postures that show an inner attitude of the heart. And which one's right? Well, the one you need to do. It's not about getting it right here. It's not about finding the exact words. If we put all of this through that filter of saying the right words, with the right posture, in the right place, at the right time, we're making this magic in the traditional sense. We're making this Gentile in pagan sense. This is not how God wants us to pray. It's about having a relationship with Him. So should you be honest with your prayers? Yeah. Body language, wording. Job was frustrated with God in the book of Job. You remember that book? He got very frustrated with God. Did he tell God he was frustrated? Absolutely. And he was wrong in the end, but God came and met him. God revealed himself to him. God still honored the prayer. Be faithful in your prayer. So we should pray as part of our regular devotion to the Lord. So one was pray corporately. You should pray in that gathered body, really the, a prayer over a meal. Um, and, and almost any time I eat with a group of people, I'm always the one that prays. And sometimes I'm like, guys, come on, you're the one that needs to be growing. I don't mind praying. But learn to do this. Do it with your own family even. And maybe it's not just the father that needs to pray. The father should lead the family to learn to do this corporately. Do it in a Bible study. Do it at church. Pray corporately. But also, this is just as important, we learn to pray as part of a regular devotion to the Lord. Maybe there's a moment in the day. Maybe it's bedtime ritual. Maybe it's a get-up ritual. Have a habit where you're praying to the Lord. But the real idea here is that we should pray without, and you probably know the word there, Without ceasing, which of course is literally quoting 1 Thessalonians 5.17. I'd love to go read the context there, but there's no context. It's just a list of principles you need to do. One of those is pray without ceasing. So this one's challenging if you think hardly about it. Because if I pray without ceasing, it seems like that would mean I never get to think about anything. You know, I can't daydream. I can't, you know, can't really do anything if all I'm ever doing is praying. That's not at all, however, what the Apostle Paul or any portion of the New Testament has in mind. So what I want to do now is, is think about some of what are sometimes called the contemplative disciplines, and uh, you'll see what those are listed here. So prayer as the center of thought. In other words, what does it look like if we pray without ceasing? Genuinely, if we redeem the mind and pray without ceasing at all times, well, it's not going to be this unending stream of conscious prayer to the Lord. That's not really what it looks like. 
it's going to see that it's, it's very different than that. It's similar to that. There's an element of that that's true, but it's not exactly that. So number one, meditation. Meditation fills the mind with God's Word. When you hear the word meditation, however, you probably immediately think of an oriental, eastern idea. The Bible had an idea of meditation long before our culture was influenced in any way by that culture. And the idea, biblically, in fact, let, let's just look at this. Go to Psalm 119. If you're not sure which psalm that is, find the book of Psalms, and then one psalm is just super long. It's that psalm. It's an interesting psalm. It, technically, it takes the Hebrew alphabet, and it walks through the Hebrew alphabet, and for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it kind of creates a mini-song praising the wonders of God's revelation, really the law, the scriptures. So I want to show you one of them. This is Psalm 119. We're going to pick up in verse 15. You probably know 11, your word I've stored in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you grew up in church, you probably learned that one. I want to show you something else, Psalm 119, 15. So we're going to talk about what it means to meditate, and here's a good example of this. So he says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. All right, so quick note on reading the Psalms. It's poetry, and it uses poetic form. When we think of poetry, our primary dominant aspect of poetry is that the ends of the words rhyme. Right? That's our primary thing. Second to that would be meter. That's how many syllables there are in a given phrase. Hebrew poetry, for the most part, doesn't care about either of those. It has a completely different system. It cares about parallelism. So it'll say the same thing twice, but just two different ways. Or it'll say two things that are polar opposite of one another. Some form of parallelism. Well, that's what happened in verse 14, and, I mean 15 and 16. So see it? I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It's a parallel statement. So each portion is a synonym for the previous. So which one goes with I will meditate on your precepts? I will delight in your statutes. So to delight in something and to meditate on something, biblically speaking, those are synonyms. It's the same thing. Now what do you delight in? I know immediately I think of <laughs> ribs. I don't know. I delight in food. Now when you delight in something, how do you, do you enjoy it differently than maybe anything else? Ah, Diana makes fun of me all the time. I really do delight in food. It's a thing. I struggle with that. I don't know if it's, it's part of it's like creation's good. There's nothing wrong with delighting in God's good creation, but maybe moderation is the word I need to learn. But when I delight in something, I can delight in a movie. I can delight in a song, but what happens is I kind of stop and just savor the moment. I know like, I looked over there and saw Joyce, I thought of fudge. So, so it just came into my mind. I put the fudge in my mouth, and it's like, and the way I say this to my kids is, I, I didn't just eat that with my mouth. I ate that with my soul. You know what I thought about? It? It's just like, whew, that was good. That was good. Whatever, delighting, that experience of delight is really the same as the biblical concept of meditate, meditating on the Lord. Have you ever just delighted in what the Lord has done? You read some scripture, you, 
We think about something of the Lord. I remember one time thinking through, I was actually wrestling through the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. And I don't want to get into the particulars. It's really complicated when you think about the nature of God versus the nature of man. And he's got two natures, but only one person. That's the hypostatic union. And like I was just wrestling through that. I was like, I just don't see how both could possibly be true at the same time. How could Jesus be God and then to be human? Like to be God is de- by definition to not be human. I was just working through it, and all of a sudden, it's, I really I was meditating on this doctrine, wrestling through it, and then it just clicked that it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. He did it, and there was just this sense of wonder, of amazement. Did that? Whoa! He figured it out. You know, this, this lingo is not necessarily right, but my mind was just delighting in the hypostatic union. But I was meditating on the Lord. That's what this meditation looks like. It might not look like that for you. I'm I'm weird. I know that, but like we meditate on the Lord. We delight in the Lord. And you can see this in Philippians four eighteen. Whatever's honorable, whatever's true, whatever's pure. Think on these things. That's what it means. Meditate on that. Next, imagination applies the power of the gospel to life. Now, people tell me all the time they're, they don't have a good imagination. That's, I've just never met anybody that that was actually true of. You imagine all sorts of things. If you're a worrywart, you have a very good imagination. What are you imagining? All the things that could go wrong, all right? We are really good at imagination. I don't care what, what your background is. You are good at imagining something. You're good at imagining things. You know, we're commanded biblically to imagine God's things. Think about this. We are told to set our minds, this is in Colossians 3.2, set our minds on things above instead of things below. Now, can you see any of the things above? Can you see the eternal that is coming? Can you truly see what heaven on earth is going to be like? Only in one way. Imagination. Think through. It's the same thing when, when our children are growing up. We look at them. We start to imagine what the Lord is going to do there. Now, we can do that in a negative way. We can start to imagine all the ways it's going to go wrong. That's not right. Let's imagine what the Lord is going to do well. Let's imagine. When I see someone come to this church, I imagine where God could have that person in five years. Meeting someone and going, oh, that's, that's elder material. Oh, you're going to be a good parent. I can see the way this is happening. I see what God's doing in your life. This is redeeming the imagination. The imagination is applying the power of the gospel just to everyday, regular life. It's part of how, that's a prayerful attitude. We're taking God and we're making Him kind of the, the theater that all of our thoughts take place within. So part of that's meditation, part of that's imagination. Number three, reflection. Reflection examines the heart. So just a real practical, tangible example here. This is a good place to keep a journal. Think back over life. What has the Lord done? A prayer journal. I know I look through my prayer journal. I have volumes of them for, for years that go back, and I can see the things I'm praying about, things I was worried about, and I'll read through there, and I'll just pour my heart out over this issue. And it's like, wow, the Lord totally solved that whole scenario. But I didn't take the time to stop and think about it. But that reflection now, I'm looking back on the wonders that the Lord has done. This is part of that praying without ceasing. It's taking all of thought captive and using it for the gospel in my mind. And number four, this one's powerful. Adoration reorients the desires of the heart. I love Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We won't go to that one, but Paul is just blessing the Lord by talking about all the ways the Lord has 
blessed him. And he's just praising God for what God does. I know we spend a lot of time thinking about what our response to God is, but really what's most powerful is just to think about what God is doing, who he is, the greatness of his name. And I love Romans chapter 8. It's one of the best chapters ever. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Spirit gives us this power to cry, Abba, Father. Nothing can separate us from the glory of God. And you can see this whole chapter just crescendo into this amazing, overwhelming praise for how wonderful and glorious the Lord is. We see the same thing Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the power of the resurrection. And he kind of ramps up and is like, and then we'll come to saying, death, where is your sting? Just this idea of us meditating, thinking about, reflecting on, and praising the name of the Lord. That's taking the thought life captive. That is prayer that never ceases. We're just redeeming every thought, every moment, making it serve God's purpose in our lives. So just imagine who you would be if God was redeeming your imagination. Your thought life in general revolved around the glory of the Lord. How much does your thought life impact who you are? We know this. What we think about largely determines what we're going to do each day. So this prayer, this idea of praying without ceasing is what empowers us to grow in Christ's likeness in a very profound and powerful way. So don't pray just to check your box. That's what I learned to do as a kid. I said my bedtime prayer, I'm a good Christian now. God will be happy with me. I've missed the entire point if I think through it like that. I'm praying to grow in communion with my Savior. Spend time with Him. To grow in adoration of Him. If I do this, it's going to have a transforming work in me.